This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, do Canadian cities need more bike lanes, more roads? What do they need? More houses? Dr. David Gordon teaches planning history, community design, and urban development at Queen's University, and he takes us through what works in Canadian cities, what doesn't work, and which cities are doing an awesome job. We go through good news, and one particular shift head caller couldn't go into City Hall with a service dog. Now he's taking a stand and going through all the proper channels with human rights complaints and getting that accepted to set an example and teach others how this should work in his world pretty cool stuff and are you okay with backseat drivers dog crates and so much more on the shift daily podcast this is the shift podcast what do you love about your city got to keep it positive right it is good news tuesday here on the shift so what do you love about your city and okay it's fair to say i'm not going to say what do you hate about your city we're going to twist it into the Good News Tuesday positive, which is if you could change one thing, what's one thing you would like to change or create in your city? 877-399-9898. That's my question for you. My guest right now is Dr. David Gordon. Um, He is all things urban and regional planning, Department of Geography and Planning, School of Urban and Regional Planning, Um, Queens. Although you are in Toronto at the moment, love Queens, uh, love AJ's hangar. In Kingston, um, the uh, the uh, this is cool. We don't often take a look at our cities, David, from the perspective of like this was a blank canvas, and somebody actually had the ideas and the notions to hey, we're gonna we're gonna put this here, we're gonna make that go there. We don't really look at it as a creation very much, do we? No, we don't. But since the Second World War, um, most elements of the layout of Canadian cities have been planned. And uh, we've developed a high level of expertise in uh, planning cities in Canada. And Canadian cities, if you look at the rankings done by a wide variety of of, uh, magazines and experts, uh, come up very well in the world uh, as uh, good places to live. You know what was not planned well? St. Catharines, Ontario, the intersection that has five streets intersecting together. That was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And there's one like that in Kingston that um, one of the ways of dealing with that is a roundabout. And mm. uh, they had a track in Kingston. There was an area called the traffic circle where the five streets came in. Um, it was fixed so-called by traffic engineers. Um, so there's now weird things happening and all kinds of traffic signals uh, in there. I kind of think <laughs> that the traffic circle was a little more elegant, and you're starting to see them in a few more places in Canada, although they confuse uh, some drivers. I think we're starting to figure it out, though. They just put a new roundabout in by my place, and although in Canada we don't use any good paint on the road, so all the lines are scraped off by a snowplow in about three weeks, if only there was good lines on the road, that would be awesome. But I think we as Canadians are are starting to understand them a little bit. We are seeing more and more of them. It seems evident that they are very good for maintaining traffic flow. They're, they're a popular solution right now. They work really well instead of four-way stops, you know. And- they do. I'm a cyclist, even though I'm a senior citizen now. <laughs> and, um, 
as a cyclist, I love the roundabouts, the small ones in the neighborhoods instead of four-way stops, because I can cruise through them without stopping. Um, they do cause cars to slow down because there's a big island in the middle of the street. Um, but you don't have to come to a complete stop. Um, and it seems to make things work better for pedestrians as well. Vancouver is using a lot of them, but other places in Canada are picking it up as well. So it's not just the big intersections, um, but it, particularly a place, any place where there's a four-way stop, sometimes these uh, uh, traffic circles work better. Mm -hmm. Very cool stuff, Dr. David Gordon. Uh, when we look at urban planning in cities across Canada, how do we do? I mean, I know like uh, you said, uh, Canada favors quite well in our planning. I would say because Canada is quite new as a country. So we've had this more recent history of planning and organization to it. If you get yourself into, I was recently in Ireland. So I guess that's really my most recent look, like some of those tight streets and then they're still parking on those streets and you basically have to drive on the sidewalk to get by. And there is no sidewalk on some of the streets and all the other things. Uh, we're doing okay in Canada, it seems. Is there any place in Canada that really impresses you uh, of what you're seeing coast to coast? Um, Montreal is doing amazing things. Really? Not enough of Anglo-Canada knows about it because of the language differences. But of all the cities in Canada, the big cities, um, Montreal is managing livability, uh, high-quality design. Um, and some quite interesting <laughs> new ideas. So, for example, in Montreal, uh, over about a 30-year period, they've decked over the um, an expressway that was um, in, in a trench between the downtown and the old city. And uh, it's got a whole series of buildings there. You'd never know that there was an expressway running underneath it. Um, the, and they've recently removed uh, an unnecessary elevated expressway called the Bonaventure. It used to plug into the back of the class Bonaventure. And there's a love, there's a new boulevard there. And the area around that elevated expressway, like the area around the Gardner Expressway in Toronto, is all was blighted by this big concrete thing in the air. And um, the neighborhoods on either side of it, Old Montreal and Griffintown, are rebounding as a result of that. Brilliant stuff. Um, and then they, you know, they've reworked a. a a public housing project that I lived in as a kid. Um, when my dad came back from Korea, he's a veteran. He lived in a new veterans housing project called Benny Farm, which looked a lot like, you know, Regent Park or any of the post-war uh, public housing projects. Uh, you know, the brick, small brick apartment buildings in a sea of grass, and it's wonderful what they've done. They've added all kinds of affordable housing um, and uh, community gardens. They've increased density. They've built nice new, um, the, the veterans now are in their 80s and 90s and need elevator apartment buildings and they built new things uh, for them. So it's, you know, it's come together very well. And all through Montreal, there are these pockets of wonderful little um, 
um, uh, cutting and stitching the urban fa fabric infill projects with affordable housing that the city's done. So um, it's many of the bad things that were happening in Montreal in the 60s and 70s are pretty much been repaired now. And there's some wonderful new neighborhoods and new districts like the um, the Cartier de Spectacle, the entertainment district downtown is it's phenomenal. Uh, you know, they close it down and have 50,000 people for a concert uh, for the jazz festival. Um, and it's just a delightful place to be. Well, it's fascinating to hear. Uh, nice to hear, actually. To My only memories of Montreal was basically stopped on those expressways. Didn't get to see much of the town. Um, when you're trying to cruise around. So it, it is cool when we hear about progress and all those things. But what matters, you said like seniors, you know, needing elevators and, you know, those kinds of things. And the the look on what is successful inside urban planning, civil planning, all those things must be so different for everybody, right? Because some people, they want to get in, get out. Some people want to go for a walk or rent an electric scooter and enjoy a tree, right? I mean, it must be incredibly difficult to look at this because there are elements of that seem so uh, subjective, or is, is there a little bit more of a scientific ability to look at that? Depends on what you're you're looking at, but we're getting better at using evidence to support urban planning decisions. So the it, there's been a great increase in the last twenty years of um, health related information informing what makes a better city. So, um, so the, the intersection between public health and urban planning is called healthy communities. And there's some very thoughtful things that have come out of that. Um, like more attention to making it, making sure that it's, that neighborhoods are walkable and that cycling works for people of all ages. Um, there's a principle called the 880 cities. And I don't know if you've heard of that, Shane. But I have not. No, that's different. Well, the idea is that if it works, if you're willing to let your eight-year-old daughter out and cycle to the store, uh, it, it'll also work for the 80-year-old senior citizen feeling oh, confident enough to cycle or walk in a place or use a park. Um, so if you design for children and seniors, um, the way that the city turns out tends to work for all kinds of other people very well as, as well. So when you're eight and you're 80, you can't drive. You don't, you know, you're, and uh, our cities work phenomenally well. And since the war, they've been designed for people who own and operate an automobile. Um, but if you're part of those people that are too young, too old, or too poor to own and operate an automobile, uh, a lot of our suburban areas don't work very well. You know, it's, yeah, it's well, Calgary. Oh my God! You know, it's awful being a teenager in suburban Ottawa in 1970 uh, and not having a car. For me, right, living in living in Farhaven over in Barhaven and trying <laughs> yeah. to get into the city, right? Yeah, and um, you know, my uh, girlfriend was you know in a subdivision that was you know three three subdivisions over in the middle of the green belt, and there was no way to get there if you didn't have a car other, or a bike. And man, I had thighs of iron from cycling back and forth <laughs> uh, all that way. 
But uh, so if we design our cities so that they work really well for uh, kids and seniors, you know, um, you know, the way that you have ramps for uh, folks who are to make things accessible and you mm. cut the sidewalk down, well, that actually works really well for young parents with prams. Uh, mm. Or if you're wheeling your uh, wheeling your suitcase, um, you know, to the to get to the airport or get to uh, somewhere. So, you know, wheeling a trolley works really well for those things that were initially supposed to be for wheelchairs, but they also work really well, well for other things. So those are, you know, improvements that have been, that we're paying a lot more attention to. We call this active transportation. Um, we're not saying, you know, that we're designing a city for no cars. We know that there are going to be cars. Cars are amazing things. They're like a, a magic carpet. I, I'm a cycle. I've cycled fifty or sixty years of my life to work or school. School, but I've always owned a car since I've been, uh, you know, mm -hmm. twenty one. I think because they're so amazing for uh, getting away or dropping your kid off at the soccer game or picking up a bunch of stuff or dropping your child off at university. Whatever. Um, middle class people are going to own automobiles. Um, the trick is to make a city that doesn't require automobile ownership to right. have a good life. Yeah. The basics. So what about the spillover? Like when I'm more familiar with south of Toronto, Niagara, than I am the Oshawa and the east of Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, but so that spillover that's gone to, you know, Oakville, Burlington, into Hamilton, now into Niagara, you, mean you could probably almost throw London in there, even though it's a bit of a trick. Um, you know, does that spillover help because it provides variety? Um, we're starting to see more of those islands of commercial along those pathways, um, whether it's trains or whatever. Is that helping us? Is that making this um, a little easier? What's helping us is the transportation networks that are knitting these places together. Um, for example, the GO trains, you're talking about the, the, the larger regional context in Toronto. The GO trains um, used to always have a big free parking lot <laughs> around yeah. the station, right? Actually, that was a really lucky thing to have done because there are these huge areas of asphalt that uh, you can tuck a garage in one corner and then you can build a small transit village around the station. Um, so what works really well around these uh, fingers of, of high capacity transportation knitting the, the region together is building um, uh, developments around the stations. Um, and they're, you know, doing that at a few places in Toronto, a place that's doing it really well right now is Vancouver. Mm. Um, you know, my students go out to Vancouver and they want to see the, you know, all the wonderful towers and the walkways around the, the, the False Creek. And that's all lovely in the seawall. But I tell them they've got to get onto the SkyTrain and go yeah. out to Richmond. Richmond, yeah. I was going to say that because in Richmond, if you ever want to find a train station, just look for the tallest buildings because there's right. a bunch of tall buildings there. There's a bunch of tall buildings there. And I promise you there is a train station right in between. Right, exactly. And they, um, and it's not just Richmond. It's Surrey and Burnaby. And uh, you know, so they've done a pretty good job of, and it's getting better every year, of making downtowns in their suburbs. 
I'm hoping that Ottawa's <laughs> beleaguered new LRT is going to be oh. a thing where there'll be clusters of buildings. You'll be able to tell where the stations are. Yeah. Just like you used to be able to in Toronto, you know, see St. Clair, wow. see Young. I would say that you're, uh, David, you're wishful thinking based on how Ottawa's unfolding it. I put it this way. Trains have been a pillar of our society for, you know, well over a century wow. now. I think by the time Ottawa gets their train done, trains will be extinct. That, that's how slow it's going. <laughs> it's well, so slow. They've certainly had their troubles, but there's been lots of other LRT projects that are going really well. Um, amazingly enough, as small a place as Kitchener-Waterloo has a wonderful new transit line called the Ion. And uh, it's just um, reworking their downtown. I mean, Kitchener and Waterloo's downtowns were not great for many, many years. They had a lot of problems and mm -hmm. they are rebuilding it in a corridor around the new uh, light rail system that starts from the University of Waterloo and goes to the far far end of Kitchener. It's uh, very, very good work. And, I like this. And this it's inspiring because it's a place of, you know, 300,000 people. You don't have to be a million people to, to start to do these these things. If you could change one thing in your city, what would that thing be? Our guest is David Gordon. He's an urban planner. He's an expert in this stuff. He's from Queen's University in Kingston. So we touched on Vancouver. We've touched on um, Toronto a little bit. So let's try to get some of our other broadcast cities and, and see, get your thoughts. Edmonton. I mean, Edmonton did put in that new ice, ice district downtown. They haven't really maximized it yet. What do you see that's exciting in Edmonton? Well, there's the redevelopment of the airport just north of the downtown. Uh, huge swap Chunk of dirt. And that the ice district is just the gateway to and the, the new college being relocated to to it. So they've got like 20 years, I hope, of of building inward rather than outwards uh, in Edmonton to work on that. And uh, in Edmonton, also, there's an old army base called Griesbach that uh, has been redone as a really nice example of uh, suburban redevelopment um, that uh, was done by the Canada Canada Lands Company. So that's coming along uh, as well there. Um, and uh, I hope that uh, the new metropolitan plan for Edmonton, which the mayor is very proud of the work that they did uh, on, will cause them to build um, more carefully uh, mm -hmm. inside rather than continuing to, to, to go out into the prairie. Sprawling. Well, that's a great, uh, that's a great cue to go to Calgary, which is very sprawling. What do you see that's exciting in Calgary right now for, for urban planning? Well, um, the East Village is amazing um, and interesting. The new library that they, mm. uh, libraries have been wonderful things for, you know, pulling the downtown a little bit more in another direction, and not just in Calgary, but in Halifax and Vancouver and now in Ottawa um, and in Montreal. Um, a new new central library built just a little bit outside the, what people would consider to be the edge of the downtown. It's helped the downtown pull in that direction. And mm -hmm. Calgary certainly had that. I mean, they've, they've had tremendous trouble the last few years because uh, of the economy in the city, but they've continued to build uh, fairly well in the East Village. I'm also following a project there called the Bridgelands that where used to be a um, 
uh, a Calgary General Hospital, huge yep. amount of land. I remember when they blew that up. Actually. Blew it up, and there was enormous parking lots, and they've stitched that back into the surrounding area, so it looks like a natural neighborhood now. Mm-hmm. And you've got, uh, you know, shops back on First Avenue there, there, and you've got uh, uh, coffee and some mid-rise uh, buildings and higher stuff happening down the hill, a big new park, and uh, all higher stuff around the. Bridgeland train station. Um, so that's all good. What's concerning me about Calgary and, and everywhere in, in Alberta and Ontario is the lack of new affordable housing, particularly yeah. low-income people. That's been very come very clear. The only thing about Bridgeland is it, well, it's cool. I'm a driver though, um, but people who live in Bridgeland, it's kind of built for non-car people. Mm-hmm. So it can get crowded at times, but it sure is pretty. What about Winnipeg? What do you see, uh, David? that's going on in Winnipeg that gets you excited other than very well insulated homes in the winter. <laughs> well, Winnipeg's proud of the fact that they have, uh, have uh, built a skateway even longer than the Rideau Canal in Ottawa. So yeah. uh, Win- Winnipeg or Winterpeg's doing a great job of showing us how to live in the Canadian winter. Um, the Forks project is my students were just recently looking at animation of riverfronts. Um, the Forks Project is a lovely piece of work, uh, work in terms of making new public spaces to, and interesting uh, things in close to the downtown, and also in terms of uh, recognizing the importance of the area for Indigenous pe- people. That's a, a nice piece of work. And the... Um, the Winnipeg's building a new bus rapid transit system, which is something you can do when you're, you know, a city between half a million and a million. Um, so they're starting to to work and see if they can uh, use that bus rapid transit system to intensify in a corridor within the city. So I'm watching cool. that with great interest. All right. So uh, urban planning, Dr. David Gordon, that takes care of sort of the western half of the country. Um, we've seen some other things that have been really great. Canmore and Banff, for example, in the summertime, they're blocking off their main streets. We do broadcast in Banff. Um, and the you know that's created a lot of cool foot traffic. It's a pain in the butt to drive around, but it, walking around the city is far more enjoyable, which is kind of, it's a bit of a gimme gotcha, but I'd say much to the benefit. When we look at Toronto, Hamilton, London has really seen uh, such a spillover in the last four or five years uh, from Toronto for value and people and opportunity to buy. That's changed a little bit. What are you seeing that's happening in, you know, Toronto? Hamilton's been up to some really great things to improve that old reputation of Hamilton, you know, versus Hamilton's the, the, done the, some incredibly cool stuff. Yeah, because it was like the rusty old grease town for so long, and it's not like that anymore. Yeah, they were also they were doing stuff the wrong way uh you know urban renewal in the 50s and 60s they were still doing that stuff later and um i remember early in my career being you know walked around downtown and um by a senior planner from hamilton who was going yeah isn't this great you got a five-lane street one-way street through the downtown and you can go 60 kilometers an hour through our downtown and have free parking at the end of it on these huge parking lots and i'm going Mm -hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that sounds, I'm not like sure that's a actually. sign of a great uh, downtown, and um, so they're looking at all sorts of interesting work being done there under uh, Jason Thorne, their new, their uh, very thoughtful planning uh, director, and I think it's a great place to work. Um, 
for our uh, graduates from our school these days. Um, they are bringing back some neighborhoods. They're cleaning up some brownfields. They're working on their waterfronts. Um, so that's all uh, great. Something that surprised me was um, that around McMaster, they're having the same kind of problem that they're having uh, around Queens and Kingston with what we call studentification. So mm. McMaster's in a wonderfully beautiful um, sort of 1920s garden suburb called Westdale. And uh, it's um, there's kind of a battle there between uh, people who are buying up houses and uh, stuffing them full of renting them and stuffing them full of students and the homeowners who are. And I didn't realize at first that this sort of thing was happening all across the country in medium-sized cities with larger universities. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great way to make money for those people who can get the property there. There's no denying that doesn't necessarily work for everything else around it other than than that. So it's most certainly questionable. Uh, London has terrible infrastructure when it, I mean, boy, you want to take half a day to drive across a small town. That would be the place to do it. Um, what are you seeing that's going on in and around London? There have been some new tower projects, uh, I, I, North End, West End, stuff like that. I, I was lucky enough to be walked around London by their uh, wonderful former plan, planner, uh, couple of months ago and there's a lot happening in the downtown um you know they've uh, made some walkable streets and uh, they've got some infill higher density uh housing go going in and they've got jobs downtown as well and that's all good um they're having a, a um and london's done the right thing they built their hockey rink downtown um, mm -hmm. That's a great a, spot, you know. And a, a new a farmers market, the Covent Garden far farmers market, is absolutely delightful. And uh, they're, you know, they're they're putting this the right stuff downtown, but they're having a problem right now with the um, fentanyl. Um, so the, the there's a, um, a a real epidemic in Canada. We're, happening right now in Canadian cities that has been hit by the uh, COVID pandemic, which is mm -hmm. the uh, fentanyl pet. And um, some cities are being hit harder than, uh, by this than others. And for reasons I really don't understand, London's downtown is, uh, is having some problems. So they're working on that right now. Well, since you bring that up, I mean, homelessness is always an issue when you're doing a planning like this. And some cities are really, really guilty of just deferring the problem to another neighborhood. And some are really good at trying to tackle the problem and get things moving. I mean, that must impact this urban planning conversation in a big way. Because if you ever really wanted to see a cause and effect outcome, those homeless folks, because they get access to things that they need, there's proximity for them for whatever they're looking for, but it really is to me anyway, just as a, a non-professional from the outside, sort of that very available evidentiary outcome of something else that happened in the planning around it. What we need desperately is um, a return of the types of programs for social housing that we had federally in the 1970s in 19 early through into the 1980s where wonderful work was done in making neighborhoods like St. Lawrence neighborhood in Toronto, my old neighborhood. Um, so that lots of housing that was affordable 
for low-income people is going to stay affordable for years and years. Um, and within that, you know, there have been projects that have been built that have been very helpful for homeless people. Um, and, you know, my favorite project, the Quebec and British Columbia are still uh, doing social housing, but the rest of the country uh, isn't, and the feds have been out of it pretty much for that whole time. And they're coming back a little bit, but um, we're really behind in, in uh, providing housing for our most disadvantaged citizens. So I was very impressed with Vancouver buying as many of those SRO hotels, single room occupancy hotels that were in terrible shape, but they're uh, really good. Um, if you fix them up and put them in the hands of a nonprofit operator, you know, these you get a, a little tiny room with a sink and maybe a bathroom down the hall or a, 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 a small bathroom worked in with your room and a you know a little tiny microwave and hot plate and it's essentially a, a, a tiny studio apartment and uh, those had been built for years and years and years in fact my favorite place to stay is an expensive hotel in Vancouver. I'm not going to tell you where it is. <laughs> yeah. Is the last of those uh, SRO hotels. Um, and uh, the, so the government of British Columbia has been buying them up from the terrible uh, landlords, cleaning them up and putting them into the hands of nonprofit organizations. And that is the best um defense against gentrification and also um, positive thing for uh, providing good housing for uh, for uh, unhoused people. Dr. David Gordon, if you could pick now your you know your your home is Kingston. If you had to pick one other place that you're most excited about, most appealing for you, um, cycling clearly matters to you anywhere in Canada, what would it be? Because now Kingston got erased somehow. It's like, by the way, Kingston is just a highway or a parking lot. You can't live there anymore. If you had to pick one more place, what's the one place you're most excited about to go live? I think I'd like to live in the Olympic Village in Vancouver. The uh, it's really wonderful. Um, the it's higher density without high rise buildings. It's got a lovely waterfront on False Creek in that corner. Um, it's got a mix of building types and mix of people in there, shops on the ground floors that have now filled out um, so you can get your groceries and uh, drugs and a cup of coffee. Um, it's green, green, green. It's uh, wonderfully uh, sustainable. And uh, they did an amazing thing there with the... Um, District heating plant. You know how they they heat and cool the buildings in that area. Mm -hmm. No, I don't. I, I I know the plant, but I don't know. Um, I don't know how they do that. There's a honking great sewer pipe that goes out to the ocean, near that runs beside it, and they extract the heat from the sewage without oh, wow. extracting the sewage, <laughs> uh, and cut and uh, like running a refrigerator in reverse, mm -hmm. uh, and they can run it the other way. Uh, cooling it's uh, astonishingly and very green uh technology for uh in 
lovely parks, uh, great, pretty good transit about to get better with the Broadway extension. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, and uh, it's what we call a lead platinum uh, for neighborhood development. So for energy, environment, sustainability, um, and for urbanity, that would be my uh, the place that I think I'd like to get an apartment. There you go. There's the advice, Dr. David Gordon, the guy who studies planning of cities and where he would go if given the chance. From Toronto at the moment, home is Kingston. Uh, thanks very much for the insights, uh, David. This is quite fascinating to look. I think it challenges all of us to maybe raise the view on our cities a little bit. Um, and it also sounds like some of the magic comes when the details matter. So I appreciate you being here. It's been lovely talking with you. There's great things happening in cities all across Canada. This is the Shift Podcast. What is your good news for Good News Tuesday? Woohoo, Trucker Scott says. Going to Mexico for 10 days. Can't wait. Oh, that would be nice, hey? 10 days on the beach. So nice. Sunshine. Margaritas. So many margaritas. Hey? I've never been to Mexico. You've never been to Mexico? I have not once. I have the furthest south I've ever been in my entire life is Orlando, Florida. Not proud of that fact. I mean, it's it's south it's but i would like to go to mexico and colombia and a lot of south american countries but yeah it's just i haven't made the trip it's too expensive to fly here so i lose all the cash to save up to travel just to go fly and see somewhere somewhere in my same country it does add up there's no denying that and there was a time even just over christmas i was trying to look at where to go remember i shared about maybe going to hawaii yeah i do remember yeah yeah it was actually cheaper for me to go to amsterdam what? I make that trip. Like it was cheaper to, to get on the plane. Just to fly to, wow! At, at, before Christmas, to go to Amsterdam, get a hotel in Amsterdam, spend a couple of days there, and fly home again, than it was to go. You know, so that's just the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your good news here on the shift? John is in Calgary now. John has taken a bad day, and you seem to have transformed it into something good. Well, I got confirmation from Alberta Human Rights that my complaint for my service dog being denied access to city hall mm-hmm. been accepted moving forward it's off to the director and we're going to tribunal so now why do you use a service dog help us understand what does a service dog do for you that that really makes your life better i have ptsd and i okay. use a service dog okay. i do so... dogs and not drugs Oh, that's amazing. Uh, that's so you. So it's not. So it literally is to have a, the companion to get through what you've been through. Um, you're not blind or something like that, though. No, I've just. I'm not blind. I've seen too much, and the, yeah. the dog's more. Of a, it's not a companion. Yeah, she's I, like I get a, it that it's a wheelchair. Dog. She's a wheelchair for my brain. Yeah, that's. Oh, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, I don't mean to uh, diminish the dog as just a companion, but I mean I was trying to simplify it. Okay, so which city hall were you going into? Was it Calgary City Hall? Calgary, yeah. Okay, and why did they say you couldn't go in? Because I walked in with a very well-behaved dog with a PTSD service dog vest on it, and I'm jumped at the door demanding to show my ID, doctor's note, 
every intrusive question why you need the dog just to go and to get a bus pass. Are, oh, really? That's crazy. Um, so oh, is no. that... It's not the first so time So is either. it PTS... Pardon me, sorry? That this isn't the first time either with City oh, Hall. That's, that's wild. So is a, is a PTSD service dog like a certified, certified dog, much like a, a leader dog would be for a blind person? Correct. Okay. Um, and so the... Now, why is it so? Im- now, I get why it's important to you um, to stand up for your rights with this. I, I respect that very much that you've done that. Uh, sharing the good news, this is a victory, and why you've accomplished this. Is this the first time that you've really felt that, okay, that's enough? I'm standing up for myself. Why does that standing up for yourself part matter to you? Um, I help other people with service dogs and training them and getting them going in life. And when I see what happens to people that are being bullied because they have a service dog, uh, they just, they get sick. It's a horrible experience. I've been on too many suicide watches with veterans trying to help them out because someone with a right of entitlement because of their position feels it's within their authority to be intrusive. Yeah, or well, maybe they're just not also getting training and have no idea, which is even worse, I would imagine, to think that someone who works as security in a place would not be given the tools to understand why these things are important. So that's also fascinating. Um, uh, so standing up for yourself, what what do you hope for the outcome is, uh, John? I mean, in a, in a situation like this, obviously, change of policy at a place like City Hall, I think, would be number one. What else would you hope for as you take this stand to make sure that nobody gets affected like this? The biggest thing I want to get through is just information and education on the public on the damage that you can create by interfering with a service dog. Would it bother if you, somebody asked questions though, and somebody just said, Hey, is this a service dog kind of thing? What's it for? Does that bother you? Um, I mean, I, the, the letters in intrusive part, I'm, I feel uncomfortable when you even say that stuff. But, I mean, at some point, somebody who does how do you get through this with somebody who doesn't know? Because the reason why I'm asking, John, is not to be critical. I'm asking because of the fact that some people have never been around service dogs before, and they might have questions. Uh, what's the best way to go about that, to, to ask a question if you don't know? Well, I just get into the educational part with people when they, when they start asking questions and getting intrusive. Um. Would you go up to a blind person and ask if you could pet their dog? Or what's your dog's no, name? No, but I also had a teacher. Do? I had a teacher in grade eight who was blind, so we learned then. But when we were in grade eight, that we also had to be taught not to touch uh, a, a working dog. So I, I would imagine there are a portion of the public that don't know. There's a huge portion of the public shame that don't know, mm-hmm. and that's that's what we've been trying to do. And uh, you know, blind dogs have been. Guide dogs have been helping blind people since 1918 in Canada. Yeah, oh, that's a cool story. And I, they, um, I and go ahead. People are getting physically beaten up for walking into an establishment to get mm-hmm. a, with their service animal. Well, and when they I, stand um, up for their rights, I, I, you know, thank you, John. Is really what I need to say. I um. I find that it's, I kind of see both sides of it. I Service animals and proper service animals and people that are using service animals, 
uh, don't need to um, go through that. They've been thrown off, right? Usually, especially if it's PTSD. I mean, it's talking about somebody who's navigating their way through life. As long as the dog is marked properly with the proper vest and all the things that are supposed to be there, then staff should be educated in that. I would think that that's, that's the way it goes. To me, though, there's, I think what we're going to do is we're going to have this conversation here on the shift because there are people that don't understand the protocol around service dogs, too. And I think there's got to be a little patience there. It sounds like, John, that's what you're trying to do is create some awareness for the people that might come up and say, can I pet your dog, not realizing that it's a service dog. Now, we did uh, receive a text that said you know, there are so many dogs that come in that people pretend that they're service dogs. My comfort animal is different than a service dog. And I think there needs to be some clear-cut standards that are placed so people can navigate all of that. Because when you've got somebody who has a proper service dog, they're not getting allowed in. That doesn't work for me at all. Thank you, John, for that. That's very insightful. Congratulations on taking a stand for yourself, following the proper protocol, and not just going out and complaining about it and doing something about it. Hopefully setting a great example for other people and standing up for those others around you that are going through it too. Pretty cool stuff. 877-399-9898. Good news Tuesday. Uh, look at that. The system seems to be working, at least to get some accountability on that conversation for John and his service dog. Asking for help can be a challenge, that's for sure. Speaking of all of this, especially when you're living on the streets, accessing basic services can be even more difficult. Craig Momney reports this one. One community is hoping to get the most vulnerable all the help they need under one roof, and it ties together the conversation about housing, designing cities, mixing with a little bit of goodness. I never asked for help until I was 28 years old on my deathbed of addiction, and I finally asked for help. Robert McLaren lived on the streets from the age of 10 until his late 20s. He says in fear of shame, he never looked to anyone for help. Years later, he's now collecting donations, supporting those who are in the same shoes he once was. I just celebrated 13 years sober from hard drugs, and I remember being homeless on the streets and being able to get nothing. So to be able to come back and give back to these people makes me warm and to have my family do it with me is more rewarding than anything. Nambert Manor was one of 50 organizations helping at the second pop-up care village set up at the Kirby Center Tuesday afternoon. It offers a number of free services like health care, clothing, food, immigration and housing support. We want to create and ensure that we have a safe space for people to relax and just have fun so they're not constantly in that survival mode. They can seek all of the services that they need one place, one time, and just kind of get all of their needs met rather than kind of going to all of the organizations all over Calgary. Damien Parisian has been clean from drugs now for five years. He's now also giving back and knows how critical these services are to those in need. It opens up avenues for a lot of people that may not even know what help is because a lot of people don't know what help is. You know, a lot of people don't know how to ask for help because of trauma and stuff they've gone through in their life. The next pop-up care village is scheduled for September. Craig Momney, Global News. I uh, love that conversation. It's Good News Tuesday here. It's The Shift. Thank you so much for being a part of all of this. Uh, what is your good news? 877-399-9898. Um, I have some good news, Texter says. I took up some home hooching and made my own hard cider and blueberry wine with nothing but sugar and bread yeast. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> Do you want to pass on that recipe, my friend? I did go to uh, Jeremy's house, and Jeremy, I was just walking, and he was like, whoa, before you come in, my buddies were over. We're making wine in the basement. It sounds very, it smells very barish in here. And it did. Kind of like that old 
dingy bar where it's really the carpet is no longer fluffy. It's kind of just crusty all the time. Kind of bar. You know what I'm talking about. That kind of bar oh, smell. Yeah. Yeah, Actually, know. you know, used to be what the saddle dome smelled like on the main floor of the basement back in the day before the flood. Uh, you know, the saddle dome ends up smelling like that by the end of the flames game, though, I would say, yeah. especially in the nosebleeds. Yeah. Oh, well, that's for that's for true. Um, but I, I don't know. I like this idea of learning how to make, it's quite the craft to make your own booze. Yeah. You know, my mom told me the story of my grandpa making homemade wine for Christmas Eve and the way she describes the taste and the, I believe she put it noxious gases, yeah. um, kind of put me off from that. Although I imagine you could do it properly. I think I'll just stick to my $11 bottle of barefoot Moscato and, be happy with that yeah but you can make your own you know that's that's okay i think that's all right i think you could do some good things there i mean that would be fun to be able to say hey i made this for you right and then you know the reaction oh wow thank <laughs> you this will be great to cook with <laughs> that's not very nice never giving you anything ever again uh good news tuesday here on the shift since ryan is joining us here how about some shoes shoe designer ron white very different than the comedian ron white just saying celebrating 25 years since canadians began donating their shoes to help bring awareness to canada's largest shoe drive Time to clean out your closet. You know, it's Canada's largest shoe drive. The goal this year is to donate 2,500 pairs of gently used footwear, adding to the 50,000 that have been distributed over the past quarter century. Here's tonight's Making a Difference. We're collecting men's, we're collecting women's, we're collecting children's. Canadian shoe designer Ron White is best known for re-engineering footwear and creating the world's first all-day heels. And now that technology is found in all of his collections. How important are the shoes on our feet? The shoes are the foundation of your body. They need to be supportive. They need to be cushioned. They need to fit properly. And it affects everything. Ron's also dedicated to charitable initiatives. And 25 years ago, he started Canada's largest shoe drive. What are you asking Canadians to do for your 25th anniversary? I want Canadians to go into their closet, find those ones that have still have life left in them, that have been gently worn and gently used, dust them off, bring them into us, and we will get them to those in need. This year, the charity has partnered with New Circle's Glow Clothing Program, Cam H Foundation, and their Suits Me Fine program, and the Ukrainian National Federation of Canada. I felt really touched of this. Wow, look at all these. Amazing. I'm Ukrainian. I've been born in Ukraine. All my family, sorry. Sorry. All my family is in Ukraine right now. Through the years, Ron and his team have collected, cleaned, sorted, and distributed more than 50,000 pairs of shoes to those who need them most. I think I've worn these maybe once or twice at best, and I want them to go somewhere where I know they'll be appreciated and used for years to come. These are absolutely perfect for the New Circles prom program. I love the fact that so many celebrities have supported and donated to your cause, Matt Damon. Those are the shoes he wore in the Jason Bourne movie, <laughs> Running Down the Street. Celine Dion from one of her concerts, Catherine O'Hara when I dressed her at the Golden Globes a couple years back, and my muse, Vanessa Williams from the Oscars. Canada's largest shoe drive runs through February 5th. Ron's shoes have been a staple in my closet for a long time, and the other ones are good memories, but time to move on. Very cool. 
Ryan, you excited? I can see the smile on your face every time we talk about oh, shoes. I, I think it's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it you know, it's not ex- exactly what I wear because it's not really engineered for me. However, the story, the drive, the fashion, all that, I appreciate the heck out of it, and it all goes to an amazing, amazing cause. It's so awesome, Matt Damon. I mean, come on, <laughs> and shoes, and Ooh. shoes. We were talking earlier about um, Bo Levi Mitchell and mm-hmm. uh, how he's officially signed his new extension deals in Hamilton, and, and there's a future there and all kinds of cool things happening. And, Ryan, you had said that you met him. He was a really nice guy because he was buying some shoes. You are doing some shoe things. I, right? I ran into him at a champs, and he was trying to pick out shoes for his daughter, and I kind of mm-hmm. – he was like, I don't, I don't know what to get here. You know, I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure what's best for my daughter. And uh, he's from Texas. He doesn't sound like that, but that's the only Texas accent I know. Anyway, uh, I kind of gestured over. I was like, this pair is really good. This pair. And he, he gave me a thumbs up. And that's a highlight of Bo Levi Mitchell. There you go. Did you see what he wore into um, his release for shoes on the videos that were circulated around of it all? He was wearing some nice black and yellow uh, runners that matched the Tie Cats yeah. team colors perfectly. Very well yeah, done. yeah, he's well coordinated. He must have taken my advice. Mike clearly thanks Ryan <laughs> O'Donnell for influencing the CFL. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with backseat drivers? Only if they're tall. Ha uh, ha. <laughs> oh yeah 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 ha ha yeah uh i will be i will be honest i have been guilty of being a backseat driver many you don't times even drive. i know i know i know how can you it's, be a backseat driver oh i know i know <laughs> it's not my proudest achievement it's not even achievement it's not my proudest fall uh i'm working on it you know i'm usually in the front seat now with you know my partner laura driving or my friends and I'm not even that great at giving directions. So now I just kind of shut up. And, you know, my Ooh. knowledge of cars is more so about the vehicles themselves, how they work, and the cool stuff about them. Not so much, can I turn here? Should I turn here? That looks like a one way. I just have learned to stay out of it after a couple of close calls and really, really awkward car rides. So. Um, yeah, coming from a backseat driver, don't be a backseat driver. Don't be a backseat driver if you don't drive. I, yeah, I know. I know. I'm not proud. That's like, really? Really? Really, really? (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, it's tough to be a backseat driver, but sometimes you're truly scared. I, I go through this with my kids when I'm, I'm a backseat driver in the passenger seat and, you know, I, I, I'm guilty of constantly having to correct their driving and that sucks because I, I don't feel like I get to enjoy driving with them because I'm constantly, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly correcting it, which I mean, it's terrible as a dad. Cause you don't get to, I don't know, you know, do you get what I'm saying? I, but I like they're, so. But they're not being very careful. That's really what my point is. And yeah. I feel like it needs to be corrected. Yeah. I, I, my mom, sometimes when my brother drives, because my brother, my parents are very good drivers, but they're both good at different things. My dad can, 
is very calm and collective on the road, but he, you know, tends to be a little bit more aggressive. My mom is much more passive behind the wheel, but is very, you know, surgical precision. And my brother likes to take a hybrid of both of those. And sometimes mm -hmm. it can be, he's a very good driver. He's the best parker I've ever met in my life. He can parallel park anything, anywhere. But watching my mom be in the car with him, there is a lot more judgment on oh don't do this and he gets so flustered by it yeah and so i feel like as a parent shane it must be difficult to give your child helpful tips on how not to die while driving while not coming across as being like a little bit overbearing or helicoptering yeah well and that's the thing is you don't want anyone to die that's really what it boils down to right so, I mean, that, exactly. that's really exactly. yeah, kind of what it is, though. Uh, okay, backseat drivers. A woman had a very big backseat uh, driver over the case uh, over the weekend this weekend, and it happened down in Australia. Ooh. Just drive from town to paradise, and you'll see why we call Australia. Donna Bevan, I feel like I should, my Australian accent is terrible. Donna Bevan Do, Donna posted Bevan. a video. See, I'm not very good at it. That's more to New, TikTok. New Zealand. That's New Zealand. That's not too much time with Chris Gilbert. Yeah, yeah, he would be Donna very angry Bevan. if he was hearing this right now. Would he? Oh, crap. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, where's Matt McCarthy when you need him? He always yeah, was really good at helping us understand the difference between that. if you're in a car or you're in a car. Between Australia and a Kiwi accent. Yeah. All right. Donna Bevan posted a video to TikTok showing a horse gleefully waiting for some Macaws ice cream in the nope. backseat of its owner's car. Nope. In case you were wondering, Aussies call McDonald's Macaws. Nope. Is that a horse nope. in your car? He's excited for his ice cream. <laughs> oh, my God. You just can't make this stuff up, can you? A woman in Australia spotted that tiny horse waiting patiently in the backseat of a car at a fast food drive-thru. I mean, it was the, oh, my God, <laughs> for me. <laughs> this was at the McDonald's in New South Wales. Donna Bevan said she thought it was the hu a huge white dog in the other car until she looked again. The other driver introduced the horse as Rocco, and as you could hear in that TikTok video, said he's just excited for his ice cream. No big deal, right? Okay, so now I've seen the clips of the Starbucks, and the Starbucks is, you know, for the puppuccinos with the doggos. I feel like that's kind of what this is, except it's a tiny horse in the back of a car. Do I understand um, that correctly, Ryan? Because I, mean, I feel yeah, like, a, um, yeah. It's a horse. I mean, it's still, it, actually, you know, it's, prob it's probably, I would say marginally bigger than your dog but still noticeably a horse and not a dog right. well, i have a big dog i have a great dane though she's not big for a great dane she's quite small for a great dane but from the scope of the dog she's quite a big dog anyway okay so um john can you play the first clip there which is the how to say mcdonald's in australian mate i'm fanging for a burger let's go down to macca's Maccas. Maccas, not Macaws. Let's go down to Maccas. It's Australia. There's no all oh in Australia. It's Macaw. Australia. Maccas. Australia. Australia. Uh, that was from ABC7.
Oh, I see, no good. <laughs> it's just like we're back to the New Zealand. We were doing so good with the Fargo, uh, Minnesota oh, accent yesterday. Fargo. That oh, today, we got lots of emails sense. about the Fargo. Yeah, we just had terrible. Not so much today. about the Kiwi. Although, no, Chris, oh, I got to stop talking to Chris Gilbert. Okay, that's from ABC7. Uh, the video shows Bevan briefly chatting with the driver of the car and a very happy looking horse. Bevan said in the post that it was an only in Australia type of encounter. I don't know. I feel like it kind of happens um, in all kinds of places. Why wouldn't you take a horse? I actually saw a picture of a horse in a Tim Hortons drive through just the other day. So, Oh. That was like a full-size horse walking through the drive through Walking through in a, like a rural. Yeah. Why does it have to be rural? Well, how are you going to get a horse right? in downtown? Well, you get a horse in the city of Airdrie where I live. It's easy. I get, Actually, you know what? You're right. There are the Calgary of police Calgary still have police. the horses. They still have the horse right? police. So, uh, you know. Could, yeah okay yeah i no that's me i was jumping the horse police i'm sorry i feel like that's like the next care us one song it's <laughs> yeah, the sound police. of the horse police whoop, nay, whoop. Nay. <laughs> that was, oh man oh i don't know what to play next here actually i'm a little bit lost in all of this right now um okay hang on let me look here and um no no no. You're trying to pick the best. No, I was trying to find a horse and I only have a dinosaur. Oh, oh you're with your sound effects. How do we not have a horse? I don't know. We have a big book I... of sound effects. We still don't have a horse. There's something wrong right? with that. All right. That's the sound of the police. That's what that was supposed to sound like, by the way. Yep. Are you okay with dog crates? I, you know, it's funny. I used to think that, like, I, I didn't have a dog growing up, right? So I thought that, why would you put a dog in a crate? You know, the dog gets comfortable at home. And then I watched my partner's family raise a golden retriever. And yeah, the crate is such an important part. And I think the cool part that my uh, friends who helped uh, them train Cora, the dog, they taught her was that the kennel or the crate becomes like the dog's den and they feel mm -hmm. safe there. So it's a safe place for them to go if they feel stressed. And that changed my perspective on it. I think it's really cool. I was downstairs cleaning my basement as I shared earlier in the shift and Harlow came downstairs where her crate is and she was just kind of sitting in the crate actually with her head poking out just watching me because that was her comfy place. Yeah. Feel yeah they love it. Yeah. yeah. Now cool. my dog's created for a great Dane is rather large. Yeah. But it's, it's just, a but cave. I love dog crates. It's so great. So they are for dogs, though, just so you know. That's why they call them dog crates. Otherwise, they'd call them, call them people crates. A couple from Stockton learned the hard way that if you're going to test out a dog crate, um, only one person needs to do the testing, which I do fit in my dog's crate, by the way. In the viral video, the man goes towards the crate, gets in. His partner then gets into the crate next to him and closes the door behind her. Uh, in the video, the man gets in the crate and then his partner gets into the crate next to him and closes the door behind her. Well, after a few seconds, the couple realized they were both locked mm. in the crates. Listen to the moment they realized they were both locked in. Uh, the couple said that if they had not been able to free themselves, they would have had to ask Alexa to call their neighbors to come and free them. It's pretty funny. It's such 
a good video. It is so funny. Uh, that's a big crate for two people to get into it. Okay, that was ABC News, by the way. They were eventually sorry, able to free crates. themselves by maneuvering the crates in front of one another and then opening them up. Yeah, two crates. They both got oh. into the crates. It wasn't one crate. It was oh. two crates, and they both got in at the same time. And so they literally had to, like, shuffle and put, use their hands to push themselves through the crate in front of each other to unlock. So that's why the video is so funny is because you just see these crates slowly moving. It's like something out of a Pixar movie, It's except there's mm -hmm. people inside, not a cute animal. All right. Are you okay with... Uh, Ryan, I'm going to ask you to do this. Are you okay with, please? Which one do you want to do? The next one? Forensics. Whichever. Forensics. Yeah, forensics. Are you okay with forensics? <laughs> I, uh, oh, I had a... I had a I had, a, I had an ex-girlfriend who really wanted to get into forensics. And it's a pretty fascinating industry, the science behind it. I mean, it's objectively really cool. What is also disappointing, though, is that there's such a massive backlog that a lot of the science gets rushed and so, you know, needs more support and all that. But it's a pretty wild science. And I think it's, you know, the kind of thing that if you are into the chemistry and you're into also like justice and crime, it's kind of the perfect job. I mean, there's a reason why NCIS has been on television longer than I've been alive. Right. Right. Well, Melanie's so, a forensic. She's in forensics. Exactly. Which is right. so cool. I'm kind of jealous. Mega science, actually. Yeah. Um, okay. Science is amazing. Police call the police are currently using it to crack. What could be the most important case in all of history and that's to find out if Santa is real, which we all know he is. Hello. A young Rhode Island girl sent a request to the police asking them to test some items for Santa's DNA for proof. Ten-year-old Scarlett Dumato gets her presents every Christmas, but now she wants to know... If Santa's real. She's doing a little detective work and bringing in Cumberland police. She sent them this letter along with a half-eaten Oreo and remnants of carrot sticks. I feel like since you, like, bit it, then there, he might have left DNA. There's a community member looking to get an answer, and we're going to find it. Cumberland Police Chief Matthew Benson has taken Scarlett's evidence and forwarded it to the state's forensic sciences lab for analysis. They're kind of prioritizing this as best they can for us. But police didn't stop there. We had our, some of our detectives head to uh, that neighborhood and um, started knocking on doors. And got some answers for eyewitnesses. We did locate witnesses who identified an individual in the neighborhood on the evening of the 24th. Um, described as a uh, an older gentleman, white beard, red coat. There is also photographic evidence. What could be one of Santa's reindeer roaming the streets? Okay, well, that makes a big difference that Santa is real. WCVB News right there. Police say that charges are actually pending against Santa. Failure to finish snacks is the charge. The DNS results are pending, too. This young lady obviously has a keen sense for truth, investigative process, and did a tremendous job packing her evidence for submission. We will do our very best to provide answers for her, said Officer Benson. STEM. Science, baby. Love it. Get a career in forensics. It's a good gig. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.